0: You know, Jay, Sabretooth always seems so petty to me. How so, Miles? Oh, well, he just murders around. He never really seems to have a greater purpose than causing pain. Ah, uh, you're selling him short. He's got plenty of ambition.
1: Like? Well, one time he killed a bunch of organized crime leaders.
0: Unexpectedly noble.
1: And declared himself the Invisible King of Asia. WHAT?! I'm Jay Edidin,
0: And I'm Miles Stokes.
1: And we are here to explain the X-Men.
0: Because it's about time someone did.
1: Welcome to episode 361 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
0: And welcome to a continuation of the cavalcade of K series of the 90s There are seriously so many miniseries in the 90s. Overall, most of them seem to be pretty good, and I am pleased to say that in our entirely subjective opinions, the one we're talking about today also is.
1: When you say most of them, I feel like we should qualify that we've barely scratched the surface of the explosion of
0: miniseries that is the 1990s. That's true, that's true, and we're skipping all the Deadpool ones, so we're not even doing all of the ex-adjacent stuff. Uh, but this one is the Sabretooth and Mystique miniseries, or as I prefer to call it, the Mystique and Sabertooth miniseries, because she's totally the main character, come on.
1: Also works better alphabetically.
0: Yeah, although Sabretooth and Mystique does let you make little S&M jokes and then you can giggle, so I guess it's got that going for it.
1: Uh, haha. Uh-huh.
0: I'm not really sure that that was a giggle, I don't know what you'd call that kind of laugh.
1: Really sarcastic.
0: Mmm, okay. Sarclastic. So, yeah, as we know, uh, in this era, Sabretooth and Mystique are both on X Factor, the government sponsored mutant team. Uh, in this miniseries, they, uh, they take a break, but maybe we should talk a little bit about just who these baddies are.
1: Okay. So, Sabretooth's Victor Creed is basically. Well, yeah, we, we've, we've talked about um, Wild Child as, as kind of emergency knockoff Wolverine. The B-grade Wolverine. Sabretooth is is also an off-brand Wolverine. He is, on the other hand, enormous. He is savage. He is an unrepentant killer. He's got a healing factor, and he's got very sharp claws that come out of the tips of his fingers. He's basically just a really, really, really awful person.
0: Oh, he's, he's utterly terrible. The X-Men thought they'd be able to rehabilitate him at one point— didn't work. Later on, in the Sixtus crossover, he becomes a good guy because everyone gets to go to Opposite Day. That's temporary.
1: Well, his Age of Apocalypse counterpart is, in a lot of ways, very close to the Wolverine of the 616 and has a pretty significant fan following. And has made appearances in Exiles and in other other series and has stayed enough in public consciousness that periodically Marvel tries to kind of translate that version back to the 616 and it just never works.
0: I mean... I actually really liked him during the 6s phase, by which I mean Axis. There was an Uncanny X-Force run that was surprisingly good. Or was it Uncanny X-Men that was basically X-Force? I don't know, they keep relaunching everything.
1: They make a lot of those comics.
0: They do. So that's Sabretooth. We also have Mystique, Raven Darkholm. She's a shape shifting femme fatale and a former leader of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Her wife Destiny, Irene Adler, but not the one from Sherlock Holmes, was a precognitive mutant who died a while back.
1: As part of being drafted onto X X-Factor, both Mystique and Sabretooth have been equipped with with sort of fail-safes um with protective measures. So Sabretooth has a collar that's supposed to prevent him from killing people or supposed to you know kill him if he kills people or shock him or something like that. And Mystique has a chip embedded in her neck that is supposed to you know similarly adversely impact her if she transforms into current X-Men for more than 10 seconds, which is pretty silly and Overly specific.
0: Aw, I love it. But between Victor's healing factor and Raven's shapeshifting, they're actually both very old. They've been alive for quite a while, long enough to get up to all sorts of mostly murderous hijinks. Largely when the two of
1: them were acting as, you know, secret agents among their many other covers, and, and, you know, assorted jobs and crimes and criminal jobs.
0: And also, the stuff they do in this episode— Which brings us to Sabretooth and Mystique number one, Old Sins Cast Long Shadows. Ooh, good title. The credits are mostly the same in this series, but different enough that I guess we should say them each time. This issue is written by Jorge Gonzalez, with art by Ariel Olivetti and Pierre Brito, colors by Kevin Summers, and letters by, of course, Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Let's talk a little about the creators. I wasn't super familiar with Jorge Gonzalez— he apparently wrote a bunch of Professor Xavier and the X-Men, which was a 90s comic that was basically Silver Age retelling, done in a more 90s style.
1: Oh, I think that we must have missed that when we were going over our, our Silver Age, you know, retelling, like, way, way, way back at the very beginning of the show.
0: Oh, sorry, episode two,
1: I think? Might have been one.
0: Oh, well, anyway... Uh, Gonzalez also will co-write the Magneto miniseries with Peter Milligan around the time we're covering. He does the Maverick series as well. And Ariel Olivetti drew an issue we covered recently. That was the X-Men Unlimited issue where Juggernaut got manipulated by a sexy demon lady and decided to be a bad guy. Olivetti will also do X-Men, Cable, lots of other various Marvel. But I gotta say, this series makes me a little more curious to check out more of their stuff.
1: Yeah, Olivetti in particular took a little while to grow on me, and especially the combination of Olivetti and Summers. Um, Because Olivetti's line art is weird. And his sense of perspective and proportion are are weird. And it it took a little while to recognize that as a style rather than error.
0: Yeah, initially it just looks sort of bad and wrong. But no, everything has got this slightly distorted quality to it. Which I don't know, somehow makes it a little a little darker, a little more intimidating. It makes the violence seem a little more violent. It's a little Lynchian. That's a good way of putting it. I was gonna say Lynch isn't a visual artist, but I think Lynch actually is is a visual artist as well as everything else. I don't know, David Lynch does a lot of stuff. David did David Lynch does whatever the hell he wants. I'm thinking
1: of it in terms of in terms of sort of this the, the, the same type of strange sort of offness of you know his filmmaking.
0: Yeah, no, you, you are not wrong. I have to ask my wife about that. She knows, like, everything about David Lynch.
1: Everything?
0: Everything. Except what any of this stuff actually means. I mean, Mulholland Drive? Hot, oh, geez. Anyway, this story opens with a S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier under attack. And as we know from how helicarriers never get broken into or crash, this is an unusual occurrence, and so what's occurring must be very significant.
1: Uh, spoiler, this helicarrier does not crash. Like, it really doesn't.
0: It just gets broken into. Uh, but it turns out that it's not getting broken into, like, as much as S.H.I.E.L.D. thinks, because all the multiple alerts and hull breaches are bogus. The intruders, however, are not bogus, and they are very, very sharp. And here's where we really get a look at Olivetti's style, because we have Sabretooth and Mystique uh, attacking a bunch of S.H.I.E.L.D. soldier types, and they look so exaggeratedly different from one another. Like, there is some intense gender dimorphism going on between the two of them. But I think it actually really works. Like, Sabretooth is all lined and veiny and just enormous. And Mystique is drawn sleek and smooth. And, I don't know, I mentioned that this bugged me when we were talking about that uh, manga-style artist in the X-Force arc we just covered. But here I like it because that fits their characters and the dynamic between them exceptionally well. So
1: I think I think that's character specific. I don't think that is gender dimorphism because it's not consistent to Olivetti's portrayals of other characters in the series. Like it's fairly specific to those to those two.
0: That's a really good point. Yeah, it's like everyone else is in house style and these two are just World of Warcraft characters.
1: They're they're sort of something else entirely. And especially with the directions that we're going to see him take Mystique later. Yeah, I I really, really like Olivetti's Mystique for a lot of reasons. Now, the dialogue here assures us that Sabretooth is not killing anyone. He's just almost killing them as he slashes through them, you know, smashes bleeding agents against a wall. And now they are here for the body of a nominal Hydra agent who is actually an AIM sleeper agent. Uh, have we talked about AIM recently? Uh, I'm not sure, or Hydra for that matter. Well, Hydra are Nazis. They're science Nazis. That's... I I realize that Marvel official canon will argue with me on this, and honestly, they're wrong because public perception is a major factor. Yep, pretty much Nazis. AIM, on the other hand, are mad scientists. They are advanced idea mechanics, and they are an utterly amoral and ridiculous bunch of scientists. They gained some degree of of, uh, great relevance to the X-Line when Roberto da Costa bought them for cash a number of years ago. Which was pretty phenomenally terrific, but yeah, they just like doing science, and they don't really care who it impacts, and they sell their science to the highest bidder, and so they're generally they're they're generally villains as well, although they're sort of villains by by accident of of
0: of um, selfishness rather than allegiance. Hmm. Well described. Exactly. So yeah, our quote heroes question mark unquote are here to find the corpse of an AIM agent who was sort of posing as a hydra agent and when they do to cut him the fuck open this guy's all messed up can we talk about the sound effects though
1: of of, of cutting open a, a, a dead gentleman's belly because they're very funny
0: oh yeah like Sabretooth goes to work as mystique's doing other stuff and in the background we just see sploot glurp I'm not sure if we have any listeners who work as, like, autopsy technicians. Um, are sploot and glurp standard words for this sort of thing? I can only assume so.
1: They strike me as, like, go commercial sound effects.
0: Oh, I never wanted to think about autopsies and go in the same topic. This is... This isn't okay.
1: I mean, I generally try not to think about go uh,
0: Also reasonable. But anyway, let's move on to the fact that suddenly a bunch of AIM soldiers wearing jetpacks attack. Now, Most AIM soldiers, if you're familiar with AIM, they look kind of like beekeepers. They wear these outfits that just make them look like beekeepers. These guys, it's more just that they have body armor, but at least their tech is very fiddly and unnecessarily complicated, and I appreciate that.
1: And they do have jetpacks.
0: Always a plus. So this is where Olivetti starts having fun, because Mystique turns into this giant armored yellow gargoyle to fight, and she looks fucking amazing. This is a version of the old 1970s Defenders character, the Gargoyle, but, like, way bigger and meaner. She actually reminds me of the very first concept art for Hellboy, if you've ever seen that, like, before he looked anything like what he looks like in the present day.
1: Oh, yeah, I can see that.
0: And she mentioned she took some liberties with Gargoyle's appearance, and maybe we should take a sec to talk about how the hell Mystique's powers work, because in this series, we see her almost entirely transforming into other people, but, like— she can kind of change the look of the other people, but only somewhat. And sometimes she just randomly grows wings and stuff. Like, what do you think's going on here, Jay?
1: I think Mystique's powers are exceptionally poorly defined and always have been.
0: Yeah, no, they're, they're inconsistent. Um, so I've been watching through X-Men Evolution because I've never seen the whole thing. And I gotta say, with season two, it, yeah, it actually starts to get genuinely enjoyable, like genuinely good.
1: Oh, yeah, it gets so much better over time.
0: Yeah, no, I I love it. Uh, But I do appreciate that this is a continuity where Mystique can turn into animals, and so, like, at one point, she's getting chased, and she just says, fuck it, and just, like, turns herself into an eagle and flies away out of her clothes, and it's hilarious.
1: I don't know why Mystique turning into birds is always the funniest damn thing in that series, but it really is.
0: It never stops being, I agree. Well, anyway, speaking of uh, Mystique flying, I guess— There is this phenomenal two-page spread as Mystique in her gargoyle form carries Sabretooth and they fly away from this just enormous, exceptionally foreshortened helicarrier with a bunch of aim soldiers flying after them, firing laser beams at them, zrapped, zrapped, zhrapped. And then when they land, she turns into Wendigo or, I don't know, maybe Sasquatch. Anyway, big, white, furry, beefy dude to fight more AIM goons. And then she turns into Angel from the X-Men to fly them away. Whoa, whoa, whoa,
1: wait a second. I thought her implant was supposed to keep her from turning into any current X-Men.
0: So as we have been enjoying and appreciating throughout that whole plot line, there are so many damn loopholes to how this thing works. Apparently, she can turn into Angel because the implant only has archangel his current like blue metal winged form programmed in and he's different enough to be distinct from angel which uh really seems like one of the many many oversights in this implant
1: the implant also says it's based on genetics which is wild because it implies that when mystique shapeshifts she becomes a full genetic copy of whoever she's shifting into which makes absolutely no sense because she can't use
0: powers just repeat to yourself, it's just a show, I should really just relax. No,
1: it's our job to nitpick this nonsense.
0: Oh, well, in that case, I think I'm with you, this just, it just doesn't make sense. It's
1: just a show, we should really just dig deeper.
0: <laughs> yup. She does mention at one point that she doesn't get stronger or tougher when she morphs into different forms, so it's kind of more of an intimidation factor. So, like, it's partially stated how this works, just some stuff like this uh, we can't fully understand with our feeble human brains.
1: I'm not sure this has ever been developed in canon, I suspect it has, but I love the idea that her mass remains the same regardless her form. So, like, when she's enormous, she's super buoyant, and when she's smaller, she's just incredibly
0: dense. So basically she's Jack from the Power Pack?
1: It's the world's densest eagle.
0: Oh man, just, like, plummeting through the floor, leaving an eagle-shaped hole, its wings spread wide
1: exactly well and that and that would limit the range of forms she could take and like the range of what she could do with them and it would explain why she tends to add wings to humanoid forms rather than turning into for example smaller birds who wouldn't be able to fly because they'd be too dense
0: all right jay you've written some marvel what do you say you want to write a mystique series next i want to see a metal bird fall angrily through a floor i mean
1: yes because i love writing heists but
0: all right marvel are you listening to the show that your sometimes freelance creator person does?
1: They're always listening, Miles. Always.
0: Mm, true. Well, anyway, let's cut away from that, as the comic does, to an AIM submarine hidden in the water nearby, which looks so goddamn cool inside. Like, it's all screens and pipes and tubes and gadgets everywhere, and everything is purple-lit. And here we meet Commander Cipher, no relation to, you know, Doug Ramsey cipher. No, 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 this cipher is very much her own whatever the hell she is. She does
1: misspell her name the same way that Doug Ramsey does, though.
0: Yeah, C-Y-P-H-E-R, totally. Okay, so this cipher is a very angry lady with wires for hair, in black lipstick, okay, wearing, like, a skimpy leather one-piece swimsuit thing with long leather gloves and leather boots and leather straps all over, including over her face with this big red diamond on her chest that made me think she must have been related to mr sinister but she's totally not and this like akira looking messy techno arm on one side she's basically a dominatrix cyborg kind of
1: one of the things i appreciate about her is that she is pointedly not like she's she's got this this very dominatrix outfit but she's not pretty and she's not sexualized
0: yeah which is strange because you know her uh swimsuit thing is extremely low cut and very open. But, um, yeah, I think it's because everyone around her is too busy hoping that she doesn't randomly kill them like that type of bad guy tends to. And her priorities are not sex. Her priorities are evil.
1: Well, and it's because of how she's drawn.
0: That's true. Her body language is not sexualized. That's handled well.
1: Well, and the language of the framing of her body and the way that she's placed in panels and the way she's positioned and the way that the, the point of view focuses on her, isn't sexualizing.
0: That's true. It kind of makes me wonder what they were thinking with her outfit design, but eh.
1: Dude, she's AIM. AIM agents are weird as hell.
0: They are weird as hell. I mean, frickin' MODOK is part of AIM usually, and I mean, look at that guy, jeez.
1: Yeah, MODOK wears way less.
0: Uh, you know, and in some senses, that's true. Uh, anyway... Cypher, in addition to being in a rad subbreed and having a great look, sends out her techno-sassins. Her techno-sassins. Okay, Jay, is that better or worse than the cyber-eye, the cybernetic samurai that we saw in Old X-Factor?
1: I'm gonna go with it being about the same level, but knock it down a couple points for the fact that they are not described as techno-sassy.
0: Oh, no, they're not very sassy at all. They're just sort of, like, mad and bladed.
1: See, if they'd leaned in and gone there... I would have been into it, but they did not.
0: All right, so we'll dock a couple points from this otherwise pretty good miniseries for that.
1: Yeah, unforgivable lack of techno
0: Mm-hmm. So the action on the helicarrier kind of reminds Mystique of an old mission that she and Sabertooth were on many, many years ago during their secret agent days. And we're just going to go ahead and cover all of the flashbacks of this story right now. In the actual miniseries, they're spread out over the series. We're going to try to make them make a little more podcast sense. So at this point, Sabretooth was partnered with a Mossad agent who was, in fact, actually secretly Mystique, wearing a different body that included a great mustache. And they were staging a rescue mission for Destiny, Mystique's wife. It turned out
1: that this was a trap. A sadistic mutant Hydra agent named Catalyst captured Mystique, still posing as Amical, as the Mossad agent, and Sabretooth tortured them a bunch with his. Mutant power to control chemical reactions.
0: As Mystique is describing this to Sabretooth, he's like, wait a minute, you were that mustache guy? God damn it, that's the second time you turned into a different secret agent and fooled me. Because of course, she turned she took the place of a woman named Lenny Zauber way back in the day and actually had a kid with Sabretooth, and that was their shitty son Victor Creed.
1: I love the idea that like almost every secret agent Sabretooth has ever worked with has actually been Mystique.
0: It, it was Raven all along. Yeah. No, it's great because she just seems so gleeful about the whole thing. She's like, haha, I totally manipulated your expectations and toyed with your emotions for kind of a reason, but kind of just because it's fun.
1: Yeah, the thing that's fun about pairing Mystique and Sabretooth as as headliners or as buddy whatever the opposite of cops are um, is that they're both really bad people.
0: Oh, they're terrible, but they're different kinds of bad people, so they're exactly. also terrible to each other, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, they're they're awful to each other, but they're, like, complementary types of awful.
0: Yeah, like a Blorange movie poster. So, eventually, they wake up in a prison cell, and Destiny is there. And, oh, man, the way Olivetti draws Destiny. Like, she's in that classic, very simple costume, but with no mask or cowl on— so it kind of splits the difference between this impressively powerful looking super character and someone who's very much a person, which in a mystique story you want to do because you really want to emphasize the connection they have. One other really cool thing that I'm so proud of myself for noticing, I totally wouldn't have when we first started the show, is the way colors are handled here. Did you notice the colors in this scene?
1: Yeah, very much. Uh Destiny is always illuminated. Like she's always always a much much brighter, much clearer color than mystique like she's she's always in gold's mystique is always sort of in dark murky reds
0: right and the background is in red as well and when catalyst shows up he's in red the main other thing that's in yellow aside from destiny is the omniscient narrator's captions which is such a cool subtle reference to the fact that oh oh destiny always knows what's going on she's a little apart from the world because of it
1: i have no idea whether that was deliberate or not which is one of the things I find interesting about it, because when you're choosing caption colors, sometimes it's to connect them to a character, but sometimes you're looking for a color that's within the palette of the page, but isn't going to connect to anything that the caption's directly against.
0: Well, for whatever reason it was done, it ended up pretty cool. Mm-hmm. There's really no direct romance between Mystique and Destiny here, but the connection is clear in their body language, as it often, often is in the eras even before they were allowed to officially be a couple. But Catalyst comes in to be creepy at Destiny and torture Mystique using his powers of accelerating chemical reactions. Eh, it's the 90s, whatever. I mean, it
1: makes sense. Everything is chemical reactions. There's a lot that you could do by screwing with, with, you know, energy conversion in cells and things like that.
0: So more or less powerful than the miracle of magnetism?
1: At this point, more.
0: Oh, okay, that's fair. Destiny, though, goads Catalyst into torturing her instead of going after Mystique. Well, specifically, she tells him. So let's get this over with. I can at least take comfort in knowing that mine shall be the last face you see before your death.
1: And Mystique trusts Destiny implicitly, enough so that she takes the opportunity to escape with Sabretooth. Uh, She does this by transforming into Silver Age Angel to fly them out. Sabretooth is at this point still unconscious, having just been tortured. And he comes to in the air vents. He's really suspicious of of his Mossad buddy's concern over Irene and his connection to all of this, because Mystique immediately changes back once Sabretooth, you know, might see her and he he actually asks you know or do you two have to have something going on and and Mystique as Amakal, vehemently denies that which honestly on one hand you can attribute to the fact that they weren't allowed to acknowledge their relationship at this point in the comics but on the other hand historically it's an extremely bad idea to let Victor Creed know whom you're dating
0: oh yeah very very good point and I mean like uh just the fact that you could describe Irene Adler as a silver fox, uh means you especially shouldn't do that.
1: Well, no, and he's he's gone after people you know, Gambit was involved with too.
0: Mm-hmm. It's true. He's, it's
1: true. he is he is he is not kind to the significant others of people who are significant in his life.
0: So, listeners, if you're gonna be in a relationship, treat your partner well and with consideration and never tell Victor Creed about it. Yep. Catalyst is about to continue torturing Destiny in a room he has filled with corpses on the off chance that her being blind means her sense of smell is heightened, which, goddamn, dude. Ew. I know, right? When Sabersooth leaps down from the ceiling, distracting him, and Destiny kicks Catalyst into an electrified bathtub.
1: Well, a bathtub full of electrified water.
0: Uh, well, yes. No eels as far as I know. Uh, anyway, so that's the big flashback. That's what we know about this former mission, about Catalyst, and is somehow linked to what they were up to, glorping through that guy's guts in the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier.
1: Now, Sabretooth really wanted to be the one to kill Catalyst, and he never really forgave Destiny for taking that opportunity away from him. But Mystique explains that now in the present, while he's not going to, you know, Catalyst is dead, that's done, they can still destroy the program he was working on. There's a program called Creatively Named Access, which steals and decodes satellite data.
0: Destiny had told Mystique that when the time came, she should glorp around in a guy's guts to find out where Access was to, like, have additional revenge. Yeah,
1: Destiny gave gave Raven a lot of advance information before she died without managing to reveal at any point that she was doing it because she knew she was going to die and wasn't going to have a chance later.
0: Oh, Irene!
1: Sabretooth creeps on Mystique a little bit, and Mystique does something that she's she's gonna do a number of times throughout the series that I love, which is to turn into a massive monster version of herself,
0: oh, yeah, she's got a huge mouth and giant teeth, and she's all burly and has claws. It's just really refreshing to see a female monster. Like, I remember how annoyed, speaking again of World of Warcraft we were back when we played World of Warcraft, that all the male monster characters were these big, toothy, beefy guys, and all the female monster characters were just, like, basically human women with, like, blue skin or whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was some bullshit, and it's very, very common in in popular media.
0: For real. Well, speaking of muscly people, suddenly, more aim agents burst in again, covered in very spiky armor with knives and blades for hands and teeth on their helmets, and all everybody must have had so much fun with this. These are the techno Assassins, and they take us to Sabretooth and Mystique number two, Torture, written by Jorge Gonzalez, with art by Ariel Olivetti, colors by Kevin Summers, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Mystique gives us a little bit more information on how her powers work. We alluded to this earlier, but as she turns into Ben Grimm, the ever-loving blue-eyed thing, she thinks,
1: I may be able to change appearance, but it's purely cosmetic. Much as I wish it were otherwise, I don't miraculously gain super strength or invulnerability when I morph. Maintaining a form of this size is always a strain, making me far weaker than I look. See, this fits with my density theory.
0: okay, gotcha. So if she turned into Fin Fang Foom, she would just float away like a cloud, wearing purple pants. Yes. It's not going well, and Mystique eventually turns into Angel yet again and tries to escape, and there's this great pair of panels as Angel is shot while flying through the air and curls up in pain, and the next panel is just a wingless Mystique silhouette falling through the snowy sky in the exact same position.
1: But they are, they are able to, to get away. Mystique blows up her safe house, and Sabretooth throws the techno assassins off a cliff. But they need to figure out next how exactly AIM managed to track them.
0: Right. Mystique figures, okay, she reprogrammed her implant. I'm not sure how, but apparently she did. I guess just so X-Factor couldn't track her. So it's got to be Sabretooth's collar. And I love this. As she tries to disable it so that they won't be tracked anymore, she turns into Forge so she can have his voice imprint in order to activate the voice command that's part of doing this. But she does it for under 10 seconds. She does it for under 10 seconds. I gotta wonder, though, this collar was supposed to make Sabretooth not be able to be violent. He was so violent before! Everything that's happened in this issue, he was, like, ridiculously violent.
1: Yeah, um, I sort of think of this as the Comics Code Collar.
0: Oh, okay, so he can still be super, super violent as long as he's not, like, holding an intestine out in the front of the panel?
1: Exactly. It doesn't limit how violent he can be. It limits how violent he can be portrayed as being.
0: Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Well, she still brings the collar along to imprison him again if necessary. He threatens to kill her if she crosses him, or maybe just for kicks. These are such the 90s versions of these characters, and I mean that as a good thing.
1: Yeah, they are... Again, a lot of fun and, and very, very good mutual foils in this context.
0: Well, they find Catalyst's old base, only to be shot down. And in fact, there's already kind of a war going on here. Hydra has taken the base, they're defending it, AIM is attacking, and in the AIM submarine nearby is Cypher. And so our heroes, heroes, fight their way in amid all of this chaos, and end up splitting up. Sabertooth, alas, falls into a moat full of motherfucking piranhas, along with a couple soldiers he's fighting. Mystique fares a little bit better. She turns into a Hydra agent, and things are going great with her infiltration until she runs into two blue dudes.
1: One of them is Dismember, and Dismember is a slow-speaking giant who's sort of stitched together at the joints. The other is Corrosion, who's a creepy spindly skeletal guy who melts people with acid. Both of them have enormous barcodes across their foreheads. Uh, both of them have the very sort of Mignola feel as monster designs. You know, you mentioned that gargoyle looking a little bit like the original Hell- Hellboy, and, and these guys have that sort of specific flavor of weirdness to them as well.
0: You're totally right. I hadn't thought about that on my own, but uh, yeah, I can completely see it now that you mention it. Mystique may look like a Hydra goon, but she doesn't know how to talk like one, and is very bad. She, like, totally rolls a one on her deception check here, so they knock her out. Also, speaking of weird appearance associations, did you notice that her Hydra mask, like that cowl she wears, makes her look a lot like Space Ghost in this scene?
1: I I, I didn't specifically, but I can see it in retrospect.
0: Yeah, maybe if she tried hosting a talk show instead of breaking into a Hydra base, she would have done better.
1: That brings us to Sabretooth and Mystique, number three, Willing Victims, written by Jorge Gonzalez, with art by Ariel Olivetti and uh, Pierre Brito. Colors by Kevin Summers and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft
0: and K.S. So I looked it up, and K.S. here is Kif Shoal. I couldn't tell you who that is, but at least that's what I think the Marvel database said. All
1: right, so... Sabretooth takes a weirdly long and dramatic time getting out of his full of piranhas, during which sequence the word nibble is used menacingly, which is something I had definitely not previously encountered. Nibble. And then he follows Mystique into the Hydro Fortress.
0: So we mentioned that we weren't super into Olivetti's art for the first part of the series. This page of Sabretooth and the Hydra soldiers like fighting each other in the water as piranhas were pulling at their costumes and flesh as they're sinking into this bubbly muck and Sabretooth's all like beefy and snarling and stuff. This was the page that made me realize, oh, oh, I love this art because this art is perfect for what this series is trying to be, which is a cross between secret agent stuff and utterly bonkers over-the-top nonsense violence. Ah, see, I was, I
1: was sold on it much earlier, and I remember the panel that got me, but I don't remember the context of it at all, which was just a dude with a big weird head.
0: Oh, I mean, yeah, okay, we were talking about the pro- proportion thing, that makes sense.
1: Yeah. So Mystique, meanwhile, is stuck in some kind of stasis ray, and guess who, it turns out, is still alive? Oh, that asshole! That's right. It's Catalyst. His plan is is to finish his access program because apparently he has still not finished the thing, despite the fact that it's been like forty years. Who is this guy? Havoc? Possibly. Um. No, no. I, I'm going to say even Havoc isn't quite this incompetent, but he's he's he wants to use this program, and once he has it, um, there there's an ambiguous step two that leads to a step three of him taking over Hydra. He also thinks it would be cool if he and Mystique had a kid, because, you know, genetic potential, and she is emphatically disinterested.
0: And I love Mystique's shit-talk toward Catalyst here, like, she knows how to make it heard. You're living in the past,
1: Catalyst. Plots of world domination are no longer in vogue. You and your motley crew are nothing more than one of those splinter groups you're so quick to disparage.
0: Is she trying to throw him off, or is she just being, like, a mean girl?
1: I mean, could be both. I think she's just really mean.
0: That's true. That is Raven.
1: In fairness, he totally deserves it.
0: Oh, yeah, that's the thing. This is a story where there are literally no good guys. Like, everyone is a villain of some sort. And so when you have a villain that's as bad as Catalyst, you're really, really rooting for the less evil characters. But that doesn't make them not bad guys. Yeah. So, yeah, Raven is just really mean. And so Catalyst sticks her back into stasis, but not before using his chemical reaction powers on her, and she just sort of explodes out into this asymmetrical, bubbling, amorphous monster form, and she looks genuinely horrifying and super rad. Now Sabretooth
1: bursts in, and Mystique is freed in the ensuing firefight, and... Yeah, we had pretty different reactions to the sequence because Miles felt like it was not sufficiently spelled out in the art and so was gone over in a caption. I felt like the caption was unnecessary and the art was sufficiently clear on its own.
0: I don't know. I mean, you have a panel of the glass tube Mystique getting hit with a bullet. And then in the next panel, she's just fighting back to back with saber Well,
1: it breaks. It doesn't just get hit with a bullet like you, you see a chunk of it coming off.
0: I mean, I guess so. Maybe I'm just so used to decompressed comics that not having every little bit of the action there visually and instead just having a caption saying, Mystique is able to escape and fight with Sabretooth or whatever it does seems weird to me, but it did seem weird to me. Like a sort of tell-don't-show.
1: You know, it's sometimes fine to tell things.
0: I mean, fair. I guess words are useful.
1: Words are occasionally useful, it's true. So while while they're fighting, um, let's see, Catalyst splits, and he leaves Corrosion just the, the smaller of his henchpersons, to hold off Miss and Sabretooth, and through all of this, Cypher is hanging out in her Ames submarine being smug. Turns out Ames' loss was actually a ruse meant to lure Hydra into a false sense of security, and... And in fact, AIM breaks in, and Cypher shows up via holographic projection to inform Mystique and Sabretooth that, well, AIM is piping in some cyanogenic gas, and it's going to kill everyone post-haste. But not before we get to Sabretooth and Mystique number four, Dead Ends, written by Jorge Gonzalez, penciled by Ariel Olivetti, inked by Pierre Brito, colored by Kevin Summers, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and, uh, what was KS's name again?
0: Kifshol. Kifshol. I also want to give a shout out to pure brito here the inks i noticed are just excellent in this issue and i believe this is the only of the issues that pure brito does all of the inks on it's a lot of shadowy blacks and sharp edges like we were talking about mike mignola stuff and the sheer amount of black on these pages the sheer amount of things being in shadow is very tacular in an excellent way
1: so what's happening with with these these deep deep black tones in the inks, so that Mystique uses her a pair of giant wings to keep the gas back, while Sabretooth forces Corrosion to burn a hole in the wall for them to escape through.
0: This part is so astonishingly excellently messed up, Sabretooth just mashes Corrosion's face into one of the walls so that Corrosion can sort of secrete out acid to burn a hole in the wall. And then, in the next panel, we see Sabretooth and Mystique uh, having successfully escaped, and Corrosion's body, not drawn in detail because it's from far away, is just on the ground with a pool of blood underneath him. Like, Sabretooth just squished this guy's face into a wall so hard that he burned through it and then gutted him? God damn, Victor, that is brutal.
1: Oh, I assume he basically just squished him through the wall, and that was what had killed him.
0: Oh, I mean, maybe. well, either way, either way that's immensely brutal. Poor Corrosion. I guess Corrosion was probably... Pretty bad person as well, come to think of it. But but still, what a way to go.
1: I don't know. Corrosion was pretty sad. We find out a little bit more about um, him and Dismember later. We find out that Catalyst created them, and so they're, they're loyal to him and would die for him because they, they see him as their their parent figure slash
0: deity. Well, now I hate Catalyst even more.
1: Yeah, Catalyst is pretty evil. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say Corrosion never really had a chance.
0: Oh, alas, Corrosion, we knew you not at all well.
1: So I appreciate in this sequence that Mystique just sprouts giant kick-ass bat wings instead of turning into Angel or something.
0: Okay, what's up with this? Because certainly we've seen her sprout di- sprout different body parts before, but this series seems very invested in her only being able to turn into other people, as does X-Factor of this era. Like, if she can just do that, if that's just a minor part of her power, why doesn't she just do it all the time? Why, does she, why doesn't she just walk around with badass wings? She turns into all sorts of forms that aren't specific other people in this series. It's just very confusing. Like, you can look up Mystique's powers in the Marvel database or something, and they're kind of clear, but they just vary so much from story to story what their logic is.
1: Yeah, they absolutely do. But the bat wings are cool, is my point.
0: They are cool. I still think she should wear them all the time. I have, like, a Halloween Isle Dracula cape, and I try to wear it whenever I can.
1: I mean, they'd get in the way, though.
0: Yeah, I guess that's true. Then she'd end up, like, strife and have to turn sideways to go through doors.
1: Exactly. Or they'd catch on things. Like, they seem pretty—they seem like—I mean, if they're like bat wings, they're very thin.
0: Yeah, I guess Mystique does tend to be a uh, pretty utilitarian person in some ways.
1: Now Cypher is preparing to download the access program using her fancy techno hair when Catalyst moseys in to the Hydra access chamber, which is— Pretty ridiculous. It's like it's a space that was designed for her to stand in the middle of on a platform and use her fancy hair to download a program.
0: Oh, it's great. Like, I wish technology worked this way. I've mentioned before, I'm an IT guy as my job, and nothing in my job looks this cool, and that upsets me. It really, really should. Why can't IT be so much more epic and a great site for epic villainous techno showdowns? Dude, you
1: just gotta work at a place with a higher IT budget. Like AIM.
0: I mean, on the one hand, kinda evil. On the other hand, look at that room. Okay, I'll think about it.
1: So, they trade insults, and Dismember kills some AIM goons. And then Mystique and Sabretooth show up, and Catalyst and Dismember split yet again. Mystique follows them, leaving Sabretooth to deal with Cypher.
0: There's this rad panel that's just a close-up of Sabretooth's, I don't know, muzzle, I guess, as he's threatening Cypher, like, with his gritted teeth and his snarling lips and this very spiky set of sideburns. Like, he look, just looks so intimidating every single time he's drawn in this series.
1: Now, as it turns out, Cypher was not actually able to download the program. Catalyst had rigged it so it can't be downloaded onto other systems, but she can still get to it, and... She tells Sabretooth, Well, look, I have set up the access program to trigger a thermonuclear strike against Russia. Um, it is going to be World War III, but there's still time to stop it. If you let me go, you can't do both. She explains to him
0: I prefer to think of it as detente. I can't take the access program with me, but at least I can ensure that nobody else will get it either. Think of it as an opportunity to prove to yourself that there's still at least a shred of humanity left inside you. That you're not just a homicidal maniac, a savage killing machine ruled by primal urges beyond your control.
1: And Sabretooth, somewhat shockingly, does the thing. He takes down the building to stop the access program. Mystique, meanwhile, faces off against Catalyst. She gets Dismember out of the way by luring him onto a falling wreckage from Sabretooth taking down the, the Hydra base.
0: Although she does get some licks in first. Like, it looks like she is super strong, even though she was saying she can't be when she's in a form like this.
1: Well, I think she's very strong, period. She's just She just doesn't get stronger when she's in a monstrous form.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, she is still a, a pretty tough lady.
1: And she then shapeshifts into Irene to push Catalyst to his death into the piranha-filled moat, um, which is a great full-circle moment to Irene's prediction that her face would be the last Catalyst saw before his death.
0: Twice. I appreciate that Catalyst has now died twice by being pushed the hell over. Into water, no less. Yeah. But that page afterward, there's Destiny, young and vital, looking down and smiling, smiling. But we know it's not Destiny. We know it's Mystique who has put that expression of satisfaction and loss, that bittersweet success onto the face of her wife.
1: Irene, you can rest easy now, my friend. It's over. This time for good.
0: This is the Mystique that I love. A vicious killer. Absolutely a vicious killer. But so often because of this incredibly pure love she has for her wife who died. Just this sense that the only way she knows to honor the loss of the most important person to her ever is to kill a lot of people.
1: You know, we, we,
0: we do what we can. It works, though.
1: Sabretooth, however, is super pissed that she got to kill someone he didn't. He really wanted to kill Catalyst. And he decides... Fuck Axe Factor. Fuck Mystique. I'm gonna go on a rampage. He starts by breaking the container that his collar is in, which Mystique has told him is rigged to deliver a fatal electric shock, and clearly is not.
0: Well, it was damaged in the melee. I don't know.
1: Or she was lying, which I really hope is what was actually going on, because it leads so beautifully into the next thing she tells him, which is... Well, you know, you're actually still going to have to put it back on and go back to X-Factor because actually, when you broke that canister, it released an odorless gas that is slowly poisoning you. And I've got the antidote, but it's back at X-Factor HQ and I'm not going to give it to you unless you put the collar back on. And I love the idea that she's just bullshitting him both times.
0: Just over and over and over as many times as she needs to.
1: Yeah, but she's just evil enough that she might be telling the truth and he can and he can never afford to risk it.
0: And the dialogue that the series ends with really hammers that home as Mystique says,
1: "Look on the bright side, Creed. Even though you just averted a world war, no one's ever going to know about it. So cheer up. At least your bad boy reputation is still intact." To which Sabretooth responds eloquently,
0: and that's the miniseries i went in with such low expectations these are characters that i like but i don't know that i tend to like them when they headline series this was just fun though it's not critical to continuity it very much is a between the raindrops kind of story but i enjoyed it kind of a lot
1: yeah likewise
0: oh huh, okay Nice little hidden, very, very violent gem of the mid-1990s. As the gems of the
1: 90s tend to be. With that, you've got questions.
0: An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, On a few episodes, Jay has mentioned an issue where Cyclops has a heart-to-heart with Cable that ends with him asking if he'd like help stealing a spaceship. I realize there are far more pressing matters, and this is beyond random, but do you happen to know which one that scene is in? I've been looking for it, but have been unable to find it.
1: Anonymous, the issue you are looking for is Cable and X-Force number seven.
0: Oh man, speaking of things I wasn't expecting to enjoy as much as I did, when this series came out, I was still very, very down on super 90s stuff, especially Cable stuff, especially X-Force stuff. This was before going into Fabian Nessier's run had convinced me otherwise. Cable and X-Force by Dennis Hopeless is a goddamn delight and actually has a great deal of heart to it.
1: It's a lot of fun, and it's a good issue, too, that specific one. And it is, I believe, all on Marvel Unlimited. We will link to the issue at marvel.com in the visual companion to this episode. Applejacks1552 asks, also on Tumblr, So what's the story with the Black Womb Project?
0: Oh boy, here we go. And I'm not sure if you mentioned it because of the recent Fabian Nicieza X-Men Legends one-shot that came out and mentioned it, but that's a really good one-shot, and everyone should read it if they haven't had a chance to. So, the Black Womb Project was a secret project to research mutation, okay, at a nuclear facility in Alamogordo, New Mexico, which you may recall as being the place that Professor X and Juggernaut's dads both worked at. And in fact, we find out, much later, that Kurt Marco and Brian Xavier were both members of the Black Womb Project. And- they gave permission to its leader, a Dr. Nathan Mulberry, to experiment on their kids. Yeah, that's that's definitely Mr. Sinister. Mr. Sinister was in charge of the Black Womb Project in secret.
1: Man, why would you give that dude permission to experiment
0: on your kids? What the hell? I mean, I guess he looks a little less evil when he's Nathan Mulberry. Uh, relevant to this episode, Destiny was actually a member of the Black Womb Project as well, but she didn't have any kids for Sinister to experiment on as far as I know. So the character Amanda Mueller, who was in that Fabian de one one-shot and who talked a lot about the Black Womb project, in the 19th century, she had a bunch of mutant babies and pretended to miscarry most of the time so she could give those babies to Mr. Sinister for experiments. Her husband was Daniel Summers, who you may remember as the kid from the Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix miniseries who's an ancestor of the ex-Summerses. That was, uh, there was one baby that, uh, she didn't deliver to Sinister that he ran off with, and I guess that's the ancestor of the Summerses we know and love. Amanda Mueller herself later joined the Black Womb Project and ended up running it and being, like, extra evil. If you're interested in this, this stuff is mostly documented in Fabian Assiers' Gambit and X-Men Forever miniseries—I guess Gambit was an ongoing—and Mike Carey's X-Men Legacy series. So, uh, there you go. It's some pretty messed up stuff, and it turns out Professor X's dad was kind of a dick. We're a fully listener-supported podcast, and some levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. It's the Angry Claremontian Narrator.
1: Panza from Denver, you call yourself. As if sticking on a location will distinguish you from among the teeming, helpless hordes. As if you and Rebecca Ginsburg might not as well be the same person for all that you can ultimately influence the unfolding of the inevitable. And the mic here goes to... Various not suspicious but sexy
0: people. Ah, Christopher Barton, my sexy little cuddle cassowary. From the burning excitement of our first date to the warm passion of all we've built over the years, I am still just as hot for you now as I was then. And now, I want to try something really dirty. Close your eyes, feel the warmth of my breath on your neck, and... I'm not your loving partner of six years. I've been Mystique this whole time. And now, yoink, I've got that sweet, mostly working Nintendo 64 of yours that I've had my eye on since before I even crafted this identity. So long, sucker. Mike McDonald, I am so sorry, honey. I had to powder my nose. We may be having this fancy dinner, celebrating our engagement to be married now, but later, baby, you get to have all of me. Just like last night, just like this morning, just like... Booyah! You thought I was your dedicated and insatiable fiancé, and that our years of breathless coupling and all of our initial wedding planning were going to lead somewhere? No way. I am totally mystique. I just really wanted to eat at this restaurant, and it was way too expensive for me to pay for myself. (laughs) Smell you later, nerd. (sniffs) Heh. Humans will believe anything. And with that...
1: Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music and may or may not be mystique. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com.
0: New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com.
1: Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn, who may
0: also be Mystique. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week we're off, but in two weeks we'll be back and mixing things up a bit. With Generation X and (laughs) X-Factor. Is a very angry later with... Okay, so... Angrelator. later. The Angrelator! later.